0: Call ClayGranger.com or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, Jawbreaker, Kruger, Loining, MD, Charles, Logan, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Toves, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman. Legends, Kinway, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, Redbeard, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the pirate history podcast. We left off last time with Captain Thomas Pound, relieved of his command in the Royal Navy and so recently turned pirate captain. When we left off, he had a crew made up of other former Navy men combined with scoundrels and scallywags. They were on board a newly captured Ketch just off the coast of Falmouth, Maine. You'll recall that Thomas Pound loyal Royal Navy captain, lost his job in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, and he booked passage on board the ship of one Thomas Hawkins. Then he commandeered the ship only to have Hawkins join his crew. Then Pound captured an armed merchant catch and released their crew, except for the ship's boy who spoke French, they were reportedly going to attack the French in the West Indies, and the ship's doctor. Then that doctor assisted the pirates, This captive, captured only a few days prior, went ashore at the Falmouth garrison to recruit for the pirates. I've been mulling that event over. More and more, I think there is something really important there. That doctor, captured just a week ago, waltzed into the garrison under the pretense of having escaped the pirates. George Dow writes in Pirates of the New England Coast, It was noticed that the doctor after he came back from the catch, was much in conversation with the soldiers belonging to the fort, which aroused the suspicions of the commander, end quote. The doctor appears to have been acting, playing the role of a captured victim of nefarious pirates. He appears to have done so to mislead the garrison commander and lure away the disaffected soldiers, which, you know, that's awesome, but why did he do that? If he were, in fact, a victim of torture and brutality, as he claimed to the commander, why did he do what he did? This was, I will remind you, an English frontier fort that was gearing up for war. They had men and guns and powder. It was the place, literally, the best place outside of maybe Boston or Salem. That was the best place for this victim to escape his captors. But that's not what he did. He did the opposite. And, having been captured only a week earlier, that's not enough time for Stockholm Syndrome to kick in. They didn't have time to, I don't know, find and threaten the doctor's family or what have you. The doctor was clearly working with the pirates of his own volition, but why? Well, I don't have an answer. What we have comes from a report filed by that commander, who was just as perplexed as I am, and a book written in 1923. I do have a few guesses, though. We could ascribe Jacobite leanings, or Catholic sympathies, or any other ideology that would suggest he supported King James. Some of that might go to explain the doctor's actions, but that's really big picture stuff. If we shrunk it down to a local level, maybe the doctor was upset by one or another aspect of local politics. They were contentious after all. But while I do love to diagnose the motivations of historic figures through the lens of politics, and, you know, while that is sometimes valid, in the case of this doctor, on board the pirate ship of Captain Thomas Pound, I think the most likely motivations were personal. Just, hey, we're going to go down south and get rich beyond our wildest dreams and lays our days away on tropical beaches. Do you want in? Oh, and by the way, as the Doctor, you won't have to do any fighting, and you'll get an equal share of all the plunder. We'll even kick in a bit extra. But the Doctor, alongside Thomas Hawkins and Thomas Pound and the rest of the crew, were never going to realize those dreams. This is episode 168, A Bloody Flag. Okay, I'd like to be clear here. This episode was supposed to be titled... Thomas Pound Part 2. When you release an episode called Thomas Pound Part 1, that's a promise of a Part 2. And it kind of is Thomas Pound Part 2, but I'm not calling it that for reasons that will soon become clear. After the garrison commander rode out to the catch and demanded his men be returned, after... Thomas Pound, who, remember he personally knew, laughed in his face and went ashore to steal sheep and powder and water and shot. The catch of Thomas Pound set out to sea. What followed was the sort of flurry of piracy that legends are made of. The pirates set sail for the south. On the 16th of August, 1689, about a week after leaving Falmouth, the pirates came upon the sloop Good Hope. She was a, a sleek, well-built vessel, a fast vessel. Smaller than a frigate, but an ideal pirate ship for the crew that they had. The Good Hope was lying at anchor just off Race Point. That's at almost the very tip of the hook of Cape Cod. Good Hope was probably anchored in Hatch's Harbor for the night when a boat full of pirates rowed over and boarded her. Now, there was no violence done in capturing the ship. The captain of Good Hope, a man named John Smart, surrendered as soon as he realized what was going on. The pirates transferred over all of their guns and their goods and their tackle, everything they needed, onto the sloop. They gave their catch over to Captain Smart and his men. This was the second time that they had upgraded ships without any overt violence being done. And that's exactly how you want things to go for a new pirate crew. They're... Recruiting men, they're collecting guns, they're stockpiling victuals and tackle and powder, and all the while, they're getting better and better ships. But they set the captured crews free with a ship and plenty of food and water to get back to Boston or Salem. That's exactly how we, as observers, and the pirates themselves, want their early careers to go. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't peaceful by any means. There was the threat of imminent violence and a sense of menace that the Pirates, and really Thomas Pound himself, instilled in their captured crews. Pound had that certain sense of theatricality, uh, a flair for the dramatic that makes really the very best of the Pirates. I mean, he's no Blackbeard, but listen to this. When Good Hope and the Ketch were ready to part ways, when Captain Smart and his men were fully aware that they were going to be let go, Pound gave them a message to carry to Boston. He said, according to Captain Smart, quote, "...tell there that they know ye government sloop lay ready, but if she came out after them and came up with them, they should find hot work, for they would die every man before they could be taken." End quote. Now that message is playing the pronoun game particularly hard, in part because it's a message, and partly because 17th century English speakers forgot how to speak the language for a while. What Smart is saying, Pound was saying, is that they knew a government ship was being ready to come and hunt them. Of course, Thomas Pound would know that better than almost anyone in New England, since he had personally commanded a ship that did just that. But Pound continued that if the governor did insist on sending out the ship, they would find hot work. He says that they would die to a man rather than be taken, which of course means that victory for any English vessel would not be certain. The governor of Massachusetts was indeed going to send a ship out after the pirates. There were two pieces of news that reached him almost simultaneously. Captain Smart delivered his message, and that garrison commander from Falmouth sent a messenger confirming that, yes, this was in fact Royal Navy Captain Thomas Pound. Now, I have to avoid drawing too many parallels to the American Revolution. See, this is Boston, after all. For example, the main wharf there at Boston in 1689 was supplied from a garrison just up the hill. It was a naval and militia bunker on the hill. It was Bunker Hill. The sloop that the governor sent out after Thomas Pound came from the Charlestown shipyards. Today, that's the home of the USS Constitution. But it wasn't yet the Charlestown shipyards, not officially, not until the Revolution, but it was a shipyard in Charlestown. Still, Massachusetts sent out a colonial sloop called Resolution, under a captain named Thomas Baxter. He ventured out into the Massachusetts Bay, then into the Cape Cod Bay to hunt down Thomas Pound. Baxter had 40 men and orders from the governor of Massachusetts to, quote, strenuously endeavor the suppressing and seizing of all pirates, especially one Thomas Hawkins, Pound, and other confederated with them. These orders continue that Baxter was to be, quote, very careful and avoid the shedding of blood unless you be necessitated by resistance and opposition made against you. Captain Baxter would fail in that mission. He never even spotted Good Hope's sails on the horizon. However, he followed the pirates' tracks like some kind of naval detective. And it's his reports that give us the best outline we have of Thomas Pound's activities. A few days after the pirates captured Good Hope, Thomas Hawkins went ashore on Cape Cod to collect meat, salt, wood, and water. While on shore, they killed four shoats, which I had to Google because I am a city boy. A shoat is just a young pig. No longer weaning, not a suckling pig, but not yet fully grown. Baxter tells us that the owner of those shoats came out to chase the bandits off, only to find twelve heavily armed pirates staring him down in the midst of butchering his hogs. But I wonder how true that is. It probably is true, but... It's possible that the pirates just bought the pigs, much like they bought fish a few weeks earlier. If that were the case, you can imagine the farmer panicking a bit when a navy sloop came calling to ask about this pirate menace. After all, trading with pirates was punishable by death due to a royal decree. Oh yeah, real mean-looking characters. Guns and swords and scars on all of them. I don't know why that turned immediately into a Minnesota accent except that I can't do Cape Cod. I was going for kind of a Stephen King movie main thing, but no, it turned into Fargo. Anyway, you get the idea. But the next lead that Thomas Baxter came across led him to what he called Martin's Vineyard. But, of course, he means Martha's Vineyard. He had to travel all the way around Cape Cod into Vineyard Sound. There, Captain Baxter encountered a brigantine named the Merrimack, John Kent, Master. Kent had... Quite a story to tell him. On the 27th of August, 1689, a sloop approached the Merrimack in Martha's Vineyard Sound. John Kent tells us that she raised, quote, a bloody flag. I want to pause here for a second to talk about flags. A general history of the murders and robberies of the most notorious pirates by Captain Charles Johnson is generally accepted to be the first text to use the term Jolly Roger in reference to a pirate flag. But this right here, this event some 30 years before the publication of Johnson's work, is the first reference I can think of, of a bloody flag. In at least the Western Hemisphere. Now we've seen examples of French pirates and privateers flying red flags in the West Indies before this point. At Panama, under Henry Morgan in 1671, there was a French captain who flew a red standard. On the Pacific adventures, there were French commanders who flew red flags. And the French had a name for that flag. And it appears that in French martial culture, which was kind of synonymous with European martial culture, a red flag had an acknowledged use as a a colored flag in a time of war. When you don't have an official standard, certain flags can represent intentions. You know, a white flag means surrender. Insert a joke about the French here. A red flag, though, symbolizes danger. It still does, really. I mean, what do we call warning signs in our relationships? We call them red flags. More specifically, though, a red flag on a battlefield said, We intend to attack you. Danger. The French called their flag, Jolie Rouge that translates to a pretty red or maybe a lovely red. I think that says something about French martial culture and Ilan, that they considered this symbol of impending violence to be lovely.
0: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Many historians argue, quite convincingly, that the Jolie Rouge is the origin of the term Jolly Roger. And I think that's probably right. But I've mentioned before the Sali Rouge. That was a red flag so famously flown by the Sali Rovers of Morocco. In a maritime sense when navy men saw a red flag they thought of the sally rouge especially navy men who had been to the mediterranean those who had encountered pirates and piracy off the coast of barbary much like royal navalman thomas pound who served on a mission to sally in which the english captured the sally rose which pound himself went on to captain thomas pound saw the Sally Rouge flying from the mast of his own ship before he took command of her. I doubt that it's a coincidence that this royal naval captain, when he eventually turned pirate, gives us our first... I'm going to amend that. Probably our first, as long as I'm not forgetting something or overlooking something blatantly obvious, but probably our first English reference to a bloody flag. Did I couch that enough to be safe? I can say that, even if this is the very first written record of a bloody flag in English, mariners of the day were well aware of its meaning already. John Kent, the captain of the Merrimack, immediately knew that these men were pirates. When good hope came up alongside the Merrimack, the deck of the pirate ship was bristling with men all holding guns and sabers and screaming the most vicious kinds of taunts and threats. Thomas Pound, the captain, approached the rail and ordered the master, John Kent, to come aboard Good Hope. This is the nightmare scenario for any honest law-abiding sea captain. John Kent told Captain Thomas Baxter, a couple of weeks later, that those pirates forced him to capitulate and stole barrels of flour and sugar and rum and tobacco. They did this while holding his crew hostage at Sword Point. Kent himself was held hostage aboard the Good Hope in the captain's quarters. Now, this is probably how it happened. I have no good reason to question John Kent's relation of events here. Take that right up front. Pirates did this stuff all the time. It's what makes them pirates. But I kind of still do question it. Rather, I acknowledge the possibility that John Kent could have been lying just like that farmer back on Cape Cod. If he were lying, he would be doing so for the very same reasons as that farmer, the possibility of a horrible execution at the Boston Gallows. But this capture of the Merrimack was the last piece of evidence that Captain Thomas Baxter came across. From there, the trail went cold. Shortly after the capture of the Merrimack, and after setting the crew and the ship free, good hope was hit by a powerful nor'easter. It blew the Good Hope deep out into the Atlantic Ocean. When the storm finally subsided and Good Hope was able to set sail for land, they made their first landfall in Virginia, far to the south of where they had been. The Good Hope was limping, thanks to the storm. It had a lot of damage, so the crew put in at a, an isolated cove in the James River, far from any English habitation. The pirates spent several days careening their ship, and they weren't alone at this isolated cove. There was another sloop that arrived the next day, but she wasn't a threat either, hiding in that cove for the same reason as the pirates, maybe a smuggler or the like. Now we know about their time spent here on the James River, thanks to the word of two brave sailors. As word of Thomas Pound and the pirate menace he presented spread, notices began to pop up in every English port city along the Atlantic seaboard. They were advising citizens to be on the lookout for the Good Hope and the Pirates, Thomas Hawkins and Thomas Pound. In Jamestown, Virginia, two men came forward with information, John Giddings and Edward Brown. They recognized the descriptions of the Pirates from a transaction only about a week past. Now I called these two men brave, and their actions here were, but I did not call them noble. They were unsavory characters. They had on board their skiff a number of kidnapped slaves, stolen from a local plantation. On no level is that great. There's, of course, the slave trading, which was legal at the time, but morally reprehensible in every conceivable fashion. But the kidnapping aspect of it was absolutely illegal. What they did was a crime to both our modern eyes and the people at the time. But I would like to mention the way that they very likely kidnapped those slaves. That makes it all even worse. There was a tactic utilized by many smugglers and illicit slave traders in which they conspired with the slaves themselves. They offered to help those slaves escape. If you let it become known that you're an abolitionist, someone who has maybe secret routes to a Maroon colony, or what have you, that word will begin to spread. It will spread among the slaves in the region, and it's not like they're going to rat you out, not their one lifeline to freedom, but then, once that rumor has spread throughout the community, you let it be known that the time has come. Your ship is waiting for them, just down the hill in this cove, that tactic, means that those slaves will do all of the work for you. You do the work of drinking in taverns and spreading rumors to the right people, but it's the slaves that formulate a plan and slip away under cover of darkness and extreme personal danger. Those slaves will naturally make their way to your waiting ship, only to find that once they are aboard, nope, they're still slaves." Only now, they're ripped away from the only community that they've ever known, assuming that they were born on the plantation, which in 1689 was pretty likely. They were to be sold far, far away from that community to nefarious characters. What made this so gutting was the emotional rope of it. The promise of freedom dangled before them and then ripped away. The reason that the buyers were so often nefarious characters was because this was a black market transaction. It was illegal. Now here on the Pirate History Podcast, I'd love to be able to tell you that those nefarious characters were actually a step up for the enslaved people. And sometimes, especially later on, that would be the case. There were those pirates who, in the vein of fictitious pirates like... Jack Sparrow, or Charles Vane from Black Sails, those who had a genuine ethical and emotional objection to the institution of slavery. There were others with less moral standing who were just capturing ships for sugar or indigo or silver or what have you, but they often took the slaves as well and not necessarily to sell them. It wasn't a sense of empathy or righteousness they just stole those slaves to give a big screw you to the effete pricks who treated them so badly before they became pirates. Oftentimes, it was a mixture of both those attitudes. Yeah, slavery's terrible, so were the masters, this is a one-two punch. Even if the pirates had desired to sell those slaves in the latter days of the Republic of Pirates, they were unable to. More often, they took those slaves to one of the maroon colonies on the main or deep in the hills of places like Jamaica. Those very colonies would often offer the pirates succor in this sea of enemies, and they did so for this work. And of course, that might have been part of it as well. They were offered food and comfort and, let's be real here, more or less willing women. That's a good payment for freeing slaves that you happened to come across while stealing cargo from the Spanish. And that's a great story. I'm really excited to tell that story. We're getting to the point in our overall story where that sea change is going to take place, but we're not there yet. When John Giddings and Edward Brown came forward to tell the authorities about that transaction with Thomas Pound, they were clear. They stole those slaves, likely by the method that I laid out, but they sold one of them to the Good Hope Pirates. Here in 1689, Thomas Pound and these pirates did not buy this slave to free them. Now, we don't know much about the slave they bought, we don't even know whether they were a man or a woman. Either way, though, the work to which they would have been put would have been awful but this information set the colony of Virginia into action. They sent out several ships north to work in conjunction. They used an interesting tactic here. Their fastest vessel set out to race the Good Hope up north. If they caught the Good Hope, they could try to capture or kill the pirates, but at the very least they would be able to inform the Massachusetts governing body of the news. The other ships weren't going to move as quickly, They were going to scour the coves and the rivers for any sign of the pirates, but they were going to do so in kind of a piggyback fashion. While one ship was searching inland, the other would race by and get to the next cove, then the ship behind it would race by and get to the cove after that. It ensured that they left no stone unturned while moving at a relatively fast pace. But of course all of these ships were sailing north. None of them went to the south. That's just the reality of Atlantic wind patterns. All the ships had to follow that clockwork pattern, from Virginia to New England to Newfoundland to England proper, down to Africa and all the way back across to the West Indies. And that, of course, included Thomas Pound's good hope. Whatever he intended for the future of his pirate venture, it had been thrown into disarray when his ship was blown out to sea by that nor'easter. That pushed him to the south, and even if he was intending to sail to the West Indies to attack the French, as he so often told the people that he captured, even though that put him geographically closer to his destination, it extended his journey by many, many leagues. From their cove on the James River, Thomas Pound had to sail back north to New England. Which wasn't great. He had to sail back to New England... A few weeks after having committed several dastardly acts of piracy in the region. New England was up in arms at these acts, literally. There were a ton of armed ships out searching for him, many of them volunteer vessels, not royal or colonial navy. There was a price on Thomas Pound's head, and everyone was hoping to collect. That, in September of 1689, is what Thomas Pound and Thomas Hawkins and all the rest of the crew we're sailing into. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, anyone who has left us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, everybody who has donated through the website, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life, all of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as usual, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you
0: for listening.